0: She embodies the American dream. The first woman trailblazer to hold a CEO position in a Fortune 50 company. She's one of the world's most
1: powerful women and still remains. Walter knows her for building Pepsi into one of the biggest food and beverage companies in the world, growing sales 80% over her 12 years as CEO.
0: I run PepsiCo. I'm the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo.
1: From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Artie Shahani. Today... Indra Nui. She became the first woman and immigrant to head a Fortune 50 company when she was named CEO of PepsiCo in 2006. She explains how living financially within her means has given her the freedom
0: to be her boldest self at work. If you don't like it and nobody's going to listen to you and you're not contributing and people are focused on taking you down, I'll just leave. Wow. Wow. And I don't want another job. I won't leave for another job. I'm just going to leave and then figure out what to do. We discuss her
1: unusual family, where the men, everyone from grandpa to her husband, have pushed her to be more ambitious. We talk about her efforts to make PepsiCo more sustainable, while before climate change was a near universally accepted fact. And we discuss her take on how women get equality at work. Do you need to think like a
0: feminist or... An economist if you think like an economist not a feminist then you say you want the best resources available which means that men and women the best talent have to be in the service of the economy and that requires some social support
1: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race, hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. When you became CEO of PepsiCo, I read this detail and literally laughed out loud. You wrote letters
0: to the parents of your employees? When I went home to India, right after I became CEO, Uh Uh, I noticed that all the family and relatives that came to visit would just say hello to me and go to my mother and say, congratulations, you did such a good job. Mm. And so I sat back and I said to myself, I'd never thank the parents of my senior executives, the people who reported to me. Mm. So when I came back to the U.S., I wrote all my direct reports, family, a letter, and I thanked them for the gift of their child to PepsiCo. I told them, So-and-so is doing this fabulous job uh, running legal or running sales, whatever. Uh And, uh, you know, for all my direct reports, I actually went and visited them. The parents personally? I visited every parent person. Wow. The 16 people that reported to me. Wow. That is unusual. They were so proud to see their parents beaming with the pride about their children. And yeah. the parents had this letter, they went around showing people saying, see what the chairman wrote about my son or daughter. Yeah, no, I mean, it totally makes me think
1: of like parent teacher day from school. And like, as a kid, I love those days. Yeah. I just, as a as an adult, I've never experienced anything like that.
0: <laughs> but just imagine if somebody wrote to your parents, your your boss's boss's boss, wrote to your parents and said, "Arthi is just fantastic. She's doing a great job, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. What do you think your parents' reaction would be?
1: I mean, I'm literally beaming just thinking of it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly
0: right now here's the fast forward uh-huh. david rubenstein interviewed me for his book on how we lead. so the story of me writing to parents was featured in that a lot of male executives started calling me here in the u.s and saying indra we love this idea can you send us a draft of the letter you wrote so we can get a sense for oh my how God. you wrote the letter because <laughs> one of the things i say okay. is you can't just write a letter it has to be authentic.
1: And so they were like, can I have the carbon copy of your authentic letter?
0: Not carbon copy. How did you frame the letter? They did it their own way. They uh-huh. just wanted to know how I approached it. I see. And then they called me back and said, the reaction we got from our employees and their parents was just unbelievable. Huh.
1: Huh. And you emphasized the male CEOs reached out to ask you that. Why'd you emphasize that?
0: Well, because none of the women have called me.
1: Indra Nui's book, My Life in Full, has a passage that I want every leader, aspiring or established, to read. She describes the times she's been invited into rooms with the most influential people on the planet. And she writes, quote, The titans of industry, politics, and economics talked about advancing the world through finance, technology, and flying to Mars. Family, the actual messy, delightful, difficult, and treasured core of how most of us live, was fringe. This disconnect has profound consequences. And then she goes on to say, In a prosperous marketplace, we need all women to have the choice to work in paid jobs outside the home and for our social and economic infrastructure to entirely support that choice.
0: To me, I look at this as motherhood and apple pie. To me, I looked at this paragraph and I said, this is so basic, uh, yet we don't practice it.
1: You could say so basic, but I mean, I'm going to emphasize here that for women who choose to work, there should be social and economic infrastructure to entirely support that choice. I mean, you sound here, frankly, like a labor leader or a feminist. You don't sound like
0: what I associate with a CEO. Numbers don't lie. 70% of high school valedictorians are women. MIT graduates 47% women engineers. Uh Professional schools are more than 50% women. Mm -hmm. If you think like an economist, not a feminist, okay, then you say you want the best resources available to be in the service of the economy, which means that men and women, the best talent, have to be in the service of the economy. However, we also need young kids. So the economic reality is that we need everybody engaged in paid work, but we also need young children. People have to have families. So when we put that additional burden on women to carry the child and deliver it, we have to do two things. One, we have to start off saying, Family is not female. Family is both male and female. Mm -hmm. They both have to support family building. Mm -hmm. And we need that smart woman and man deployed in the economy. And that requires some social support in terms of caregiving, paid leave, flexible work hours in order to make this happen. So I'm not talking like a socialist or a labor leader. I'm just talking as an economist.
1: I mean, that's not a widely held or articulated view among...
0: Today, it's becoming more widely held when we have a huge labor shortage and we're desperate
1: to get people back. You can say it's becoming more widely held, but at the same time, we're talking at the exact moment when a federal effort to actually institute paid family leave and, and subsidize childcare is failing.
0: Well, it's high time we had the conversation. So let me give you another example. Mm -hmm. Uh, The jobs of the future that cannot be automated are caregiving, nursing, retail, hospitality. Many of these jobs require high touch, high human touch. Mm -hmm. And many of them are female-oriented job teachers. Mm -hmm. Women are participating in those jobs in large numbers. If you don't provide them a support structure, and then lament about the great resignation. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. To me, any discussion of the great resignation has to be followed up with a discussion of the great re-enrollment. Mm. So we have to find out who's leaving, why are they leaving, how to bring them back. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. we know who's leaving now. We see women leaving in large numbers, but how to bring them back. You have
1: emphasized this is the perspective of an economist, not a feminist, Why is that important for you to emphasize? I identify with both.
0: I think that it's important to think of this issue as economists because men in power need to come to the table. All men need to come to the table. And look at this as a national priority to take all the resources we have Uh and grease those kids for them to contribute to the economy. Uh So it's an issue that everybody has to worry about, men
1: and women. And you think that the F word will basically push people away?
0: it's viewed as uh, just women complaining about women. No, it's not. It's about taking the best talent and putting it to work for the economy. All the studies show that the economy can grow another point or two of GDP if we can deploy them. So stop talking about women uh, fighting for women's rights. That's an outcome, okay? But if you think like an economist, you'll realize that, Obviously, the women have to have an equal say at the table. They're so wicked smart. They're all highly educated.
1: And the numbers tell you they're dominating anyway. Let's stop yeah. arguing about this. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not going to pretend that um, that I totally agree with you. I'm, I'm mm. processing what you're saying about how you bring more stakeholders to the table, specifically in this case. How do you bring men in to have a rational conversation about family when it's instantly thought of as a woman's issue, even though it's obviously not a woman's issue. Um, But here's the point, I
0: think. The minute you use the word feminist, it's no longer about family. It's about (laughs) single women screaming for a cause. I'm saying that family is family. Family is not female. And the more we offer maternity and paternity leave, the more we start talking about how do we rebuild our society? to make it more family friendly because family is the core of society in any shape or form. I don't care what shape it's in. It's the core of society. Otherwise, you know what's going to happen. We're going to have a loneliness problem.
1: <laughs> we already have a loneliness problem. Well, it's going to get worse with
0: 10,000 <laughs> right. people turning 60 or 65 every day, the boomer generation. Uh-huh. We're going to have a mighty big loneliness problem. If we don't somehow figure out between families and caregivers, How do we bring the human touch back again?
1: Uh Uh-huh. And your observation is that many people have compelled themselves to basically stay single and not having families because they felt like it was an impossible choice to have both, to have it all.
0: I mean, women are delaying having children. They're freezing eggs in record numbers. It's the fastest growing industry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, our birth rates are dropping.
1: I'm currently pregnant.
0: And, Congratulations, uh, thank you.
1: My first pregnancy and I am 42 years old.
0: Congratulations.
1: Proud of you. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling great. Uh, but clearly I bring that up to say I am an example of what you were saying.
0: <laughs> I, I have so,
1: daughters to remember. Yes, that's right. Indra Nui was born in a free India in 1955, eight years after British colonial rule ended. She came from a comfortable middle-class family that is also Brahmin, the highest caste, and widely revered as the most educated. She points out she also grew up in a family where the women and men believed in gender equality.
0: I did win the lottery of life on those points. Mm -hmm. I will never, ever say that I wasn't helped along by that. The society at that time, most of the people, especially in our communities, at 18, they had arranged marriages for their daughters. That was a typical pattern. And then they got married, had two or three kids, and lived a comfortable life. It was a very simple, uncomplicated life. Right. Now, Indra and Chandrika come along. My sister Chandrika and I come along as two daughters in this family. And our grandfather and father say, dream big, soar, do anything you want to do, mm. study We will help you with your homework and making sure that you're on top of all your work. Mm. Um, But we want you to do whatever you want. If you want to stay home and get married and have kids, that's also fine. Mm. But we want you to do whatever you want to do. You know, it was just a great upbringing where we all debated, fought, screamed, argued issues. And we were encouraged to do that. And what was the big
1: dream for you? What did young Indra think her big dream was?
0: I had no big dream. I just knew that I wanted to be somebody. Mm,
1: interesting. You did not, as a little girl, dream of being the CEO of Fortune 50.
0: Don't even know what that is. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. You've been
1: married now for 40 years to Raj Nui. 42. Excuse me, 42 years. Uh-huh. Did he have those same values as your father and your grandfather did? Or was it more of a, you know, a struggle pulling him along?
0: Oh, no, no, no. He was very much of that himself. You you know why? Because when we got married, my father-in-law pulled me aside and said, keep working. We're there to support you. Don't worry about it. We are proud of the fact that you're educated. And please do whatever you choose to do just know we, you have our support. So did my mother-in-law. And even today, I would say my husband's family, Aarti, is even prouder of me than maybe even my extended family. They really, really take pride in me. I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that. And I'm also kind of wondering,
1: is it really that rosy for you? Because I, you know, You married somebody who is also career-driven. Yeah, yeah. And I just have to assume that the family in the corners were whispering to each other, hey, can Indra be more supportive of her man's career? As opposed to like, she's a beast, she should go for it.
0: You know why? Because my husband never gave off the impression that I was not supportive. Mm. Raj always told his family, we are equal partners and we work it out not to worry.
1: You know how bizarre and unique that
0: sounds, right? I am now beginning to understand it's bizarre and unique because many people in our extended families, communities, Uh all encourage their girls to go and work and study and move ahead. And so Uh for families that don't do that and sort of put uh, chains around their daughters or daughters-in-law, I wonder why. I think I want to go back and uh, correct a comment that I okay. don't want misconstrued in sure. any shape or form. Please. Everything I've talked about looking at issues as an economist, not a feminist, is because I think that has universal appeal and we can all understand that we need to take all the resources we have to put it in the service of the country. Right. And I think men and women should come to the table and think that way. Right. I am not knocking feminism at all. Mm-hmm. Okay, people dismiss feminists only because they think it's not a, a, an issue that benefits everybody just benefits women, but it mm-hmm. should, it should because women need equality, feminism has a role in society, and women need to make a case for themselves don't even get me wrong, mm-hmm. a lot of men need to be feminists too, right. they need to make a case for women. It's just that making the case as an economist has broader appeal. And that's all the point I'm making. I'm not
1: at all knocking feminism, so don't get me wrong. We will not quote you as Indra Nui anti-feminist. Absolutely not. What I do believe I hear, and this is maybe where I have a bit of a disagreement as I listen to you,
0: mm-hmm. is,
1: you know, when you say speak like an economist, it has the most broad appeal. I think that it has a different purpose. You know, I identify as a feminist and what that, what that means to me is equality. I also fully appreciate that for many people, feminism is associated with man hater and the single female with a pink hat, with no regards for. Like I understand the sort of the images that that conjures up. At the same time, when you're part of a community that is under attack, having an identity for that community, having a convening space, having a shared language. It's a really important thing to have internally as you try to build power. And so I kind of think we need feminists and economists. But I take your point, And I didn't hear you as attacking my identity in that way.
0: I have two daughters. And they are feminists. Oh, my God, they are. Just mm-hmm. as I am. Okay? Uh-huh. I want women to rise. I want talented women to be equal with talented men. Okay? Right. I want total equality in society. I'm all for it. Uh I just believe that in the corporate world in particular, in society in general, when you make the case, like an economist saying, you've got incredibly smart women coming up. Mm -hmm. Don't just say we have to have quotas for women. Just say the best and brightest should be in the deployment, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, in paid work. I hear you. And so the
1: only thing that I'm saying in addition to that is, Indra, um, I love my family I did not grow up in a family as enlightened as yours. And Mm. so from an incredibly early age, I I think seven years old, Mm. I learned that word and that identity of, oh, women's rights, women's equality, and I held on to it because it was this thing I needed to identify other like-minded people in a context where we were not treated equally. And so I think that there's so much value to that word and that identity, though I take your point about how it will absolutely turn off certain people, not just men, men and women, who we need at the table. I get it.
0: Yeah. And that's the only point I'm making, which is I am a feminist to the extreme. I mean, I want equality. I want my daughters to be in a society that's equal, but I want us to think much broader than that because I want everybody who's talented to be brought in equally. And I tell you that if you did that, there'll be a hell of a lot of women.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your own experience with this. The word I use sometimes is gaslighting, but this sort of being cut down in the workplace you dealt with discrimination. That was a thing for you, mm-hmm. right? Can you describe something you went through? Because thus far, the image I have of Indra Nui is blessed for extraordinary luck in family.
0: <laughs> uh-huh.
1: No. I want to understand um, some of the friction you had to deal with.
0: Well, you know, many, many slights. I'll give you one. Early in my career in corporate America, but it was still very senior. I was not the junior most person in the room. I was in a senior executive meeting. People expected that I was going to write action items in the meeting because I was the only woman there. Oh, there were okay. a lot of junior men, uh-huh. but they assumed I was going to write the action items. You're the stenographer of their thoughts. Okay. Or just the most junior person that's going to record the action items. Okay. Uh-huh. So I sort of, I was amused that they thought I was going to do that. Uh-huh. So... I said, okay, I'll write the action items, no problems. So Mm -hmm. I I took the action items. I went back to my office. I crafted the action items into a beautiful document as to why this action item, by when should it be delivered, to what level of detail. And I sent the memo out. So people came back and said, but we didn't agree on these dates. I said, yeah, action items without dates are useless, so I added dates. (laughs) And they said, but was this the context in which we talked about? I said, yeah, we didn't have a context, so I put it in context for you guys. So I'm helping you. (laughs) That was the first and last time they asked me to write action items. They felt like she's giving us orders. Or she caught us. (laughs) Okay? Because what happens typically is people like to talk about what they're going to do. People like to talk about dates, but not link the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, here I linked everything and provided a structure. Uh Uh, Another one would be, you know, in planning big strategy meetings. Uh Okay? I remember with one CEO... Roger Enrico, I would ask a lot of questions because I've read all the material. So I'd ask about three questions. When I got to the fourth, he'd look over at me and say, your three-question limit is up. And did everyone have the three-question limit or it was just you? Oh, it was just pulling my leg. I didn't know I had a three-question limit, but that's okay. I just, I'd give him the same smile. I'd say, that's okay. I've asked my three questions, uh-huh. but I have another five. And uh-huh. I just smile. And at the first break, everybody would come to me and say, Indra, can you give us the other five questions? Mm. And so he'd watch this. He'd watch everybody coming, running to me and say, Indra, what were the other five questions? Uh So I don't care a damn what he said. Uh I have those eight questions that need answers.
1: I love the playfulness in which you're describing these challenges. Like you're -hmm. you're literally smiling. I see the mischief on your face. You're like, Uh and that's how I got them there. And that's how I got them there. These are good war stories. (laughs) At the same time, Indra, you also wrote about nearly quitting your job at Pepsi because of how you were treated.
0: It was just one incident, but let me, uh, a series series of incidents that led to that outcome. The reason I'm smiling about these things is that the same Roger who would say, you only have three questions, your time's up, is one, Roger was my biggest mentor and supporter. Mm. But let's go back to the incident where I quit. I felt in every meeting when I was presenting these numbers, one or two people would say, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, but I think you're trying to take over our forecast or something like that. Mm-hmm. Roger didn't say. He just allowed these guys to decimate me in every meeting. Mm. And when we were in London, this happened. And I just left halfway through. I said, enough. I'm, I've had enough. I'm going. back. You left London. Yeah, I left London, took the fight back. Mm. But I was so pissed off. And then when I came into uh, the office, I walked up to him and said, Roger, I've had enough of this. I can't deal with this constant complaining about my forecast and how these guys go at me and you don't say anything. Uh So after this, I'm quitting. He just looked at me and pencil twiddled for a while. He said nothing. Uh But the meeting that afternoon was delayed three hours. And after that, there was no looking back. Meaning? Meaning uh, everybody was nice to me after that. Mm.
1: So he understood, like, oh, she's pissed. Like, this is a breaking point. Uh And then similarly to your husband who signaled to the family, everything's great here. He used his voice to signal to everyone, you better stop doing this.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. In moments where you have the right to be offended, but to not be offended, that can be really hard. Was it ever hard for you, or does this sort of playfulness, this jocularity, does it come naturally to you?
0: You can't be playful all the time, I think. If you see blatant discrimination, you will get angry, of course. And so what is the
1: actionable lesson, though? Because I'm sitting here, and I'm listening to your enormous capacity to be playful in the face of passive-aggressive discriminatory behavior, and I'm wondering, okay,
0: what can I replicate or learn from that? So. My husband and I decided that we would never live beyond our needs. We would live a lifestyle that we can support with just one salary. Mm. And it doesn't have to be the highest salary. We'll support it on one salary. So we live very simply most of our life. I see. And so when you go to work, it's like if you don't like it and nobody's going to listen to you and you're not contributing and people are focused on taking you down, I'll just leave. Wow. And I don't want another job. I won't leave for another job. I'm just going to leave and then figure out what to do. So this
1: is not the answer I expected, but basically you're saying you're knowing that we're not living beyond our means. These are not golden handcuffs. I can walk away. It helped you keep it light.
0: And I also said, hey, I think I'm pretty competent. I put the company before me. And, you know, you should want to keep Sure. And they all did. Right, right. What did you expect?
1: Well, I thought that you were going to tell me something a little bit more rah-rah about, you know, take deep breaths. um, Think about a funny moment from childhood. You know, let yourself emotionally be ready to smile. But what you're saying is, no, the reason I could smile is because I didn't need to be there. And so long as yeah. you have that freedom, it gives you the freedom of the range of emotions that can be mobilized in any moment.
0: So it's that freedom and also the confidence that you can find another job. You should have both. After
1: the break, when Indra Nui had massive life and career changing news, she told her mom... And her mom told her to go do some house chores.
0: You know what? She's mom. She grew up in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Am I going to change her now? I don't think so.
1: This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. The night you find out that you are president of PepsiCo, Mm -hmm. you come home and you tell your mom and her reaction is, hey,
0: go get the milk. Your mom tells you to go and get milk. At 10 o'clock in the night, go get milk. Uh And um, I'm just sitting there going, I have great news for you why do you want me to go get the milk first? Can't you listen to what I have to say? Uh-huh. She'll say, I don't care what the news is, just get the milk. So I go get the milk, come back. Uh, I, say, I say to her, mom, why couldn't you wait until I had big news for you? I told, shared my news with you. I'm going to be president on the board of directors of PepsiCo. And she goes, I don't know what that all means. But I will tell you that as far as I'm concerned, when you walk into the house, you're the wife, you're the daughter, you're the mother, you're the daughter-in-law, all of those roles." Uh so do me a favor just leave your crown in the garage when you come home just play the role you're supposed to play Uh... (laughs) so you know at that point I was mad for a brief moment Uh on the other hand Arati she was right when I come home I have a different role to play and I'm okay with that but would she have said that if you were her son no probably not but that's okay you know what? She's mom. She grew up in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Am I going to change her now? I don't think so. She's the same mother who allowed me to cross the oceans and come to the United States. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I think it's very, very important that we put this whole thing in context.
1: In 2006, PepsiCo promoted Indra Nui to CEO of the company, it was historic. She became the first woman and immigrant to run a Fortune 50 company. One of their own was just named the most powerful woman in American business by Fortune magazine,
0: Indra Nooyi. And when
1: she came in, she did not rule conventionally, like someone trying to hold on to the job for as long as possible. She announced a big, bold, unexpected initiative.
0: And as part of a new operating philosophy, what we call performance with purpose. What prompted you to come up with the concept of performance with purpose? Did you just
1: wake up one morning and say, I'm going to to, to reinvent the mandate of Pepsi? Or is this something you've been thinking about for a long time? She was way ahead of her time, acting years before environmental sustainability was in vogue and climate change was accepted science.
0: Oh, it was just a way to future proof the company. I codified all that into performance with purpose, which included human sustainability, how to start moving our portfolio into to including healthier choices, environmental sustainability, how to replenish the environment, and talent sustainability, how to truly cherish our people. Uh-huh. So performance of purpose was not about corporate social responsibility. It was mm-hmm. changing the way we made money. Mm-hmm. Without performance, we couldn't find purpose. Mm-hmm. Without purpose, we couldn't deliver performance.
1: What was the reaction when you announced that?
0: The board bought into it fully. Fully. Mm-hmm. There were some holdouts. People have said, if it ain't broke, why fix it? So why rock the boat, Indra? Why rock the boat? If it ain't broke, why fix it? Those are the kinds of things. But a place that you identified
1: to be broken was simply the enormous amount of waste the company was pumping into the environment. For example, plastic bottles everywhere. For example, use of water supply greater than it needed to be. What were you able to do? What could you accomplish specifically with regards to those environmental issues?
0: We were using, I think, two and a half liters of water to make a liter of Pepsi in uh, 2006. Over time, we brought it down to 1.8, 1.5, and we were awarded the Stockholm Water Prize for uh, you know the best performance in water replenishment. It's like a Nobel Prize for water. Mm. Uh, And on plastics. We started to incorporate recycled plastic in our bottles. Mm -hmm. Uh, We built solar fields next to many of our plants. Uh, We went to hybrid trucks. We placed large orders for electric trucks. I do want to ask,
1: and let's note your efforts have absolutely been acknowledged. You'd cited the the award around reducing the amount of water consumption. At the same time, uh, let's talk, for example, about single-use plastics. Uh, I went to my local supermarket and picked up a bottle of Pepsi. Uh, uh-huh. And I was fascinated. Pepsi mango, that was not a thing when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. And Indra, something I noticed on the bottle is it says, and you can kind of see it, it says, please recycle. It's misleading. Because this bottle that I'm holding in my hand, I can, as a consumer, spend water rinsing it out to remove the sugars, put it in my recycling bin. But it's not going to get recycled.
0: Oh, yes, they do get recycled. So the PET bottles get uh, picked up and uh, they get broken up into pieces. Some of it comes back into the next PET bottle because 20 to 25% of all plastics in a beverage bottle is recycled plastic. And the rest of it goes to making fleece jackets, carpets, all that stuff. So more and more towns are establishing closed loop systems where they actually recycle all of this. We want more recycled PET. The problem we have now is getting enough recycled PET.
1: In your efforts To be more sustainable, for example, in 2010, Mm -hmm. you'd set out the goal of, along with other U.S. beverage makers, we want to engage in recycling 50% of the plastic and glass bottles and cans we use by 2018. You set that goal in 2010. By 2018, 50% of these bottles should be recycled, 5-0. Your partners in that effort, a couple of groups called USO and Walden Asset Management, they ended up writing a very blistering report. And they said, not only did PepsiCo fail to achieve that goal, but the amount of recycling actually dropped by 2% over the course of that time.
0: So recycling is an industry initiative. Mm-hmm. which requires cooperation from towns and municipalities. Mm-hmm. It cannot be done by the beverage industry and one company individually. Mm-hmm. If municipalities don't put in closed-load recycling systems, individual companies cannot do it on their own. I can't go to a grocery store separate out a Pepsi bottle from other bottles. Just can't do it. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in most cases, the reasons that these initiatives don't work is because you know that many, many towns in the country don't have uh, separation of waste. and, uh...
1: And so in that period of time where you'd set out this goal, and, you know, you strike me as someone who actually wants to achieve the goals that they set, you set out this ambitious goal. And frankly, in this respect, you didn't make it. According to your partners in this effort, you actually fell even further behind.
0: How do you size that up? Um, you've got to put it in balance. Everything has to be put in balance, with the successes also. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the report talked about the role of municipalities. I don't know if it did. Um, it did not. And, you know, I don't know if you dug deeper to look for it. But then if somebody understood how the recycling industry works, without municipalities leaning in to separate the waste, you cannot do any recycling. Yeah, and so that, that's, you know, this is where... You know, when people choose to criticize, they just criticize. They don't think about the issue holistically. The amount of time we spend lobbying states and municipalities to really separate the waste and recycle is enormous.
1: I have seen you say, Indra, that you do not pick mentors. Mentors pick you. And I, I saw that and I was like, oh, that's very different from my approach to life because I, I think that I have this tendency to like aggressively knock on the doors of people who I think can teach me something. And I was like, what does, what does she mean? You don't pick your mentors, mentors pick you.
0: So my book, I write about all the mentors I've had. Uh-huh. They just didn't give me advice. Mm-hmm. They promoted me. They supported me. Mm-hmm. They're also your best critics. Um, uh, But for somebody to play such a profound role in your life, they've got to feel like if they hitch their reputation to you, they can then say, as you rise, I had a little say in her success. Mm. And I'm talking of those kinds of mentors with a big capital M. Mm. Okay. They're way more than just supporters. They they play a profound role in your life. I too have lots of mentors. I just call now and then and get a piece of advice or run something by them. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about these individuals in your life who play a larger than life role, who feel vested in your success. Mm. And those people find you. It's an unusual person. Mm -hmm. It takes a special person to be a mentor because the mentors that I'm talking about have to be secure enough but they're willing to develop that next generation of people. Mm,
1: what you just described. I could think of maybe a, a handful of people who play that kind of role in my life, I'm, and I'm grateful I can think of that. If you don't have that yet, how do you get that?
0: You know, Arte, there are some people who are going to move up and ascend some corporate ladder. They may not all have this mentor of the capital M. They may have lots of little people that help them along the way, Uh which is okay. Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, I get letters every day saying, will you be my mentor? I don't know Mm -hmm. what that means. I don't even know that person. How am I going to be a mentor to
1: them? It's kind of like, will you marry me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not even an arranged marriage. Will you marry me? Okay, I don't know who you are. A
1: Craigslist marriage, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sorry about that, yeah. I spoke with one of your mentees, a woman named Angela Acharya. And what's yeah. so funny is, you know, she's your mentee, and she's also just a beast, right? She is a <laughs> leading Silicon Valley tech investor, manager of actress superstar Priyanka Chopra. Uh, and Angela Acharya, she was downright Giddy. I mean, like little girl giddy talking about how you met in a crowded room and you bothered to take the time to say hello to her. And then she described the flavor of your relationship. I want you to listen to this.
0: She invited me and Priyanka to go to her house and she fed us dosas, And we would just talk about everything from business to personal, um, She's not just interested in you one dimensionally. She's interested in everything about your life. She'd ask me about, you know, who I was dating, who I'd met, what was interesting about them, what was not interesting about them. And then she would ask me about what projects and things I'm working on. (laughs) (laughs) (gasps) Mm -hmm.
1: She had said that your approach to her really changed her approach to others because mm. she was like before Indra when I was mentoring people I would just talk to them about their professional life and it, almost like she was allergic to hearing about the person like here's a wall we're going to stay in these confines and then by way of your approach it actually kind of helped to loosen her up to be more interested in the whole person
0: mm. the people who mentored me knew me my family Everybody that uh, had a major role in my life, they got to know them too. Uh I mean, I know Ange, I know her very well. And, uh, you know, I'll ask her the uncomfortable questions that, you know, she doesn't have answers to. She'll think about them, go back and say, you're right. Uh, I didn't think through this. Mm. But, uh, you know, I take the time. I love her and I take the time to uh, show her that I care for her and I love her.
1: My lessons from Indra Nui. One, when developing professional relationships, be open to connecting to the whole person, even their parents. Unusually personal gestures can build extraordinary loyalty. And it's fun. Two, Avoid golden handcuffs. If you are living within your means, if you know you can afford to quit, you will have the freedom to be even bolder in your current position. It's an interesting paradox. Three, when someone tells you, leave your crown in the garage, be the stenographer of the meeting, don't ask more than three questions, do not get rattled by other people's rules. Smile through their bullshit. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Hina Srivastava, Justin Bull, and me, Artfi Shahani. Our intern is Sylvia Goodman. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If you like what you heard, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It'll take you a second. Go there. Click. It's easy. Or share the episode with a friend. Nothing like word of mouth. Tell me what you think. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at arthy 411 AARTI 411. For exclusive offers, you can sign up for the Art of Power newsletter at wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. See you next week.